Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 26 Everything Changes. The team went to China. Dave Bassett went on holiday, and back in Watford, everything had changed. Bassett got a hard time from a couple of his allies in the national press, who felt he should have given them a heads up on his move to Watford. Tony Stenson at the Sun said I should have tipped him off, but Elton had asked me to keep it quiet, he says. In retrospect, we should have used the press a bit. We could have agreed the deal, but kept it quiet until things had calmed down. Elton could have let slip that my name was in the frame. I could have said that I was flattered to be linked with Watford, and people could have got used to the idea. Elton's decision had not gone down well with some of the directors, but unlike in 1977, when Jeff Smith and Muir Stratford managed to press the case for Graham Taylor instead of Bobby Moore, there was no time to intervene and talk him round. We were a very united board until the famous day, says Stratford, to be fair, this is the only thing I will ever hold against Elton. It was the only thing he did on his own, without consulting the rest of the board. Elton is a very complex character, very fired up, but he can get very depressed very quickly. The football club had kept Elton's enthusiasm for ten years, which was pretty good, but I did get a sense it had been waning. I don't know what prompted Elton to go off on his own on this one. The first Stratford and Smith knew about Bassett being appointed was when it was in the paper. It wasn't so much that Bassett was chosen, it was that the decision was not taken by the board, says Stratford. One of Bassett's conditions was that he brought in his own men, and I think that was the biggest mistake made. Whoever followed Graham Taylor was going to have a difficult job, undoubtedly, but it would have been half as difficult if the staff had been left alone. Graham didn't take them. Bassett got rid of them. But if you have a new broom coming in, sweeping everything away, it will be difficult. Though shocked by Taylor's departure, most of the players were not concerned about Bassett's arrival. In the brief window before Bassett was appointed, one or two names were flying around. The former West Ham player Trevor Brooking was one. When we heard it was to be Bassett, I don't think anyone was too surprised, says Luther Blissett. He knew what a club like Watford would be like. He had a similar work ethic and similar beliefs about the game. Halfway round the world in China, the players pushed the uncertainty to the back of their minds. Whatever lay ahead when they got home could wait. It was a fun trip. They played a few games, experienced an eye-opening culture, and visited the Great Wall of China. Elton was one of the lads again. He would play a tune or two on the piano in the hotel bar in the evenings, and the players would sing along and lark about. Elton turned up with a stack of huge suitcases, says Lee Sinnott. One of them was just for his hats. Richard Hill was the new boy. He had been Graham Taylor's final signing, pinched from under the noses of Chelsea and Tottenham. As an attacking midfielder, he had been the driving force behind Northampton Town's fourth division championship success. Hill was signed just before deadline day in the spring, but was loaned back to Northampton for the rest of the season. He had signed for Watford because of the impression Graham Taylor made on him. I was on my way back from the doctor, having had all my jabs for the China trip, when I heard on the radio that Graham was going to Villa, he says. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I had to get my manager at Northampton, Graham Carr, to ring Watford to check they still wanted me, because 
Although the transfer had been done, I still hadn't signed my contract. Hill travelled to China with the advice of a former teammate, Trevor Morley, ringing in his ears. He told me I had to go in there and make an impression, Hill says, cringing at the memory. So we got to China and I spent three weeks taking the piss out of the chairman. We didn't have a manager out there and I wanted to fit in. I don't know why I did it, really, but he took it very well, although Tony Coton had to tell me to calm down a bit. After the China tour, Hill was scheduled to meet his wife in Hong Kong so they could fly on to Auckland for a holiday. She wasn't too happy flying out on her own, so I went back to England, arrived at Gatwick, drove up to my home in Hinckley, and the next morning we were back at Gatwick to fly out to New Zealand. By the time we arrived, I'd been in the air for about three days. We had a holiday, went on to Hawaii, and when I got home, there were only about ten days until pre-season started. I tried to keep fit over the summer, and I thought I was in decent enough shape, but I wasn't. I was trying to jump from the fourth division to the first division, but my body didn't know what time zone it was in. The team's pre-season trip to Sweden had been arranged before Bassett took over. We were in a dry hotel, run by some Christians in a one-horse town, says Hill. Graham had picked it because we were there to do some hard work, but Harry wasn't best pleased. Bassett wanted them to work hard, but also play hard. He hoped to bond with his new players over a few beers in the evening, but the atmosphere was flat. Once training began, the manager began to make up his mind about a few of the players. They were having doubts about some of his methods too. We did the pre-season cross-country and I thought, fuck me, some of these can't run, says Bassett. I was finishing ahead of some of them and I was more than ten years older than them. Mark Falco had already been tapped up by Glasgow Rangers so he was going to leave. I wasn't too bothered because in my opinion he couldn't run and wasn't going to do it for me. Richard Hill was so unfit. That was a bad bye-bye, Graham. I liked Hilly, but he wasn't going to do what I wanted. I wanted to play with a 4-4-2 with two wingers, and he didn't have the legs to play as part of a two-man midfield. I realised we had a few problems. I watched a few videos of Watford playing and saw the extent of the contribution John Barnes made and realised I was in trouble. John was already leaving, but he came to my house and listened to what I had to say, but there was no way he was going to change his mind. There were some terrific lads, but I think Graham had kidded them they were playing more football than they actually were. They wanted to keep possession and pass it. They didn't want to play long ball because it was fucking hard work. I felt a few of them were in decline. I should have sussed out while Graham was leaving. Bassett, always a wheeler dealer, brought in a few new players. Steve Terry's wife, Tanya, had been very ill during the spring and had a heart transplant operation. Terry's priorities were elsewhere, so Bassett signed Mark Morris, a central defender from Wimbledon, for £40,000. Mark was a steady Eddie, but he was only meant to come in as cover, says Bassett. He ended up playing nearly every game. He was a good lad to have about the place, but because of the Wimbledon connection, he wasn't the right one and people were against him from the start. Tony Agana, who was working as an insurance clerk while playing for non-league Weymouth, and Peter Heatherston from Falkirk were recruited. Tony would have had a better chance if he'd been coming into a settled team, says Bassett. He was terrific for me at Sheffield United, but he wasn't John Barnes. He had to put on the number 11 shirt Barnes had worn, and people were expecting miracles from him. The search for a target man, a battering ram of a centre-forward, was frustrating. Sam Haman threatened legal action if Bassett tried to sign John Fashionu from Wimbledon. Celtics' Alan McNally was supposed to meet Bassett at Vicarage Road to discuss a transfer, but didn't turn up. A few days later, he signed for Graham Taylor's Aston Villa. 
Dave Mitchell, a former teammate of McClellan's at Rangers, paid his own way to join Watford in Sweden. The Australian striker had been playing for Eintracht Frankfurt, but because of the German league's restrictions on foreign players, found he was on the way out. I'd heard Feyenoord were interested, but I wanted to try my luck in England, he says. I paid my own flight and trained for a couple of days, and it was going well. Mitchell scored a hat-trick in a 9-0 win over a small Swedish team called Tegs. I was made man of the match, and I was presented with a very nice Swedish tool set as a prize. The other players assumed Mitchell would be sticking around. Although it was only a practice match, he played very well, and I knew what he could do. He would have fitted in well, says McClellan. But Bassett did not see Mitchell's hat-trick. That afternoon he had flown back to England to tie up a deal with another striker. Trevor Senior had scored a lot of goals for Reading. He was an old-fashioned target man, strong in the air and with an eye for goal. Senior had heard through the grapevine that Bassett was interested in taking him to Manchester City if he was appointed manager there. The interest from Watford didn't come completely out of the blue, he says, having travelled to Germany and back on an old army bus for Reading's pre-season tour. He was now flying first class to Sweden, with Bassett having confirmed a £325,000 transfer. Mitchell flew back to Germany, then joined Feyenoord, and later played for Chelsea and Swindon. I was disappointed because the manager hadn't even seen me play. Not all was lost, because I've still got that tool set to this day. Dave was very energetic and enthusiastic, says Senior. On the flight he told me he wanted to get a pacier striker alongside me. John Fashionu was mentioned, and he said that would be a great partnership. He said he was trying to get Glyn Hodges to play on one wing and Nigel Callaghan to play on the other. It sounded ideal to me. We were going to play very directly, just as I've been used to at Reading. Senior played his first game in Sweden before he'd even trained with the rest of the squad. I did OK, although I didn't score. Then I scored all five in a 5-1 win, and it couldn't have gone any better. I was very optimistic about it. Bassett did not share Senior's optimism. We were thrashing these teams by five and six, scoring loads of goals, but I thought, I don't fancy this lot at all. There was a general malaise about the place. Kevin Richardson soon realised he was not going to fit in. Whatever Dave may say, we have been expressing ourselves a bit more. We weren't just a long ball team, far from it, he says. I had a bad feeling early on. In a training game, I got the ball from one of the full-backs and turned to play it across to the winger, and Dave was shouting, Whoa, 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 what's all this about? Don't play into midfield, hit the front men. Kevin, get up and win the knockdown. I'd just done a season of trying to slowly change that, and now we were going back to a more extreme version. We did this drill in training, where the full-backs would hit long diagonal passes to the wingers, and it was just sailing right over my head. If it went out of play, I had to press up to put pressure on the throw-in. If I did get the ball, I just had to help it back up there and squeeze in. The goalie was dribbling out of his area and launching a long ball like Dave Besant had done at Wimbledon. I realised this wasn't for me at all. The players were uneasy about some of the changes that were taking place. All the things Graham built up, the rules about being clean-shaven and not wearing jeans, calling the manager boss, all that discipline went overnight, says Coton. You could wear jeans and have stubble, and you called him Harry. The training was too relaxed. He sucked out all the hard work that had been put in over the years in five minutes. People like Wilf, Kenny Jacket, John McClellan. I didn't say anything, but you could tell they were thinking it wasn't right. The atmosphere went pretty bad, pretty quickly, says McClellan. 
Suddenly people weren't enjoying it, but he knew best because it had worked at Wimbledon. I don't think he took anything we did or said into account. He didn't recognise our strengths, either as a team or as individuals. He just wanted us to be like his Wimbledon team. Bassett was intransigent about the style of play. He had similar methods to Taylor. He had someone in the stand counting shots and crosses, and his philosophy was not a million miles away, but his style was a little rough around the edges. It had been successful, and I was supposedly going to a club with better players, but they weren't better players, a lot of them. Worrell Sterling wasn't Dennis Wise, was he? Things soured on the training pitch. I was just left standing in goal doing nothing for hours while they went through their set plays, says Coton. I would go over to Tom Wally and ask to do some shooting practice with the youth team. He'd say, is it OK with Harry? I'd say yes, but Harry wouldn't even notice I was gone. I'd come from the fourth division, and we had a very varied training regime, but when I got to Watford it was one-dimensional, and I thought, is this normal? says Hill. We did a lot of 11 against 11, just playing out set situations all day, it felt like. I can remember the physical aspect of the training wasn't as demanding, says Gary Porter. Alan Gillette was the first team coach, and with all due respect, working with him was like being back at school, says Richardson. One day I fired it over the bar and he said, Kevin, you're hitting the ball all wrong. You need to get your knee over the ball more. I thought, is this guy for real? Who has he played for? I know how to kick a ball. How does he know I didn't blast it miles over the bar so I'd get a minute's peace while I went to fetch it? As a bloke, I didn't have anything against Dave. He was a nice guy. He wasn't unpleasant to me, but I wasn't going to do anything in his team. And at the end of the day, it's me who has to go on the pitch and be judged by the people watching. I bought a tape of Engelbert Humperdinck's Please Release Me and I'd wind down my windows and play it at full volume when I arrived in the car park for training. Bassett sold Richardson to Arsenal, and a season later they won the league championship. Bassett admits he was too hasty and should not have sold him. I forced one or two things and I shouldn't have done. I should have given Kevin a bit more space. Tony was a terrific keeper, but we had a few rows. McClellan was playing up because I think he wanted a move. Trevor was a bad buy. He was a lovely guy. He wasn't a great player, but he scored loads of goals. When I was at Sheffield United, he played for Middlesbrough and he killed us. He scored four in a 6-0 and I said, Fuck me, Trevor. You've scored more goals against me here than you did for me at Watford. Nothing went right for him at Watford. David Bardsley says Bassett had the old door to the manager's office and all trace of Graham Taylor erased. He thought he could bring in some clowns from Wimbledon. But when this other crew came in, was like a big joke, he says. The training was rubbish. I was obviously one of the ones he didn't think was going to be good enough for him. I was more than happy to get my ass out of there. The fixture list was published. Watford's first game under Dave Bassett would be at home against Wimbledon. When the fixtures came out, I was dreading it. I really wanted to beat them, and we did, but it was just papering over the cracks, he says. People were against me from day one. I got some shit press in the Watford Observer. Ollie Phillips didn't like me. He said we played offside too much. He dragged up all this stuff about the Sunday league team I'd played for. Hills. We had a bit of a reputation and I'd been sent off a few times, but he didn't mention that the reason we got kicked out of the league was for an administrative error. I said I was going to keep Graham's rule book, but he made a big thing about the fact I allowed the players to wear jeans. What's wrong with jeans? They wore jeans at Man United, you know, even then. I found out that when Graham was there, Ollie used to sell stories on to the Nationals, 
and he got the hump because I knew the people in the press and I was going to deal with them direct, which meant Ollie wasn't earning. Phillips has written several times that his dealings with the national papers had nothing to do with the tone of his coverage for the Watford Observer, and a close examination of the paper's back issues shows only mild and proportionate criticism and just a passing mention of Bassett's association with the Hills Sunday League team. Bassett was always on the phone to the press. I got on OK with Dave, says Eddie Plumley, the chief executive. When he first arrived, he was off to watch a game somewhere, and he suggested I go with him so we could get to know each other. Well, we hardly said a word, because he was on the car phone all the way talking to journalists. He would talk and talk. After defeats at Nottingham Forest and Manchester United, Watford drew 1-1 at home to Tottenham before losing 1-0 to Norwich at Vicarage Road. Senior had still not scored. I had two or three great chances against Wimbledon, he says. One was going into the top corner and I was almost celebrating, but Besant clawed it over the bar. Hill was substituted against Tottenham after suffering from cramp. Yes, the pace was quicker, yes. I should have been fitter, but there are elements in a week's work that can help you get fitter, he says. We did two days of running at the start of pre-season. The lads told me the previous season it had been two weeks. After the 1-0 defeat against Norwich, Watford were booed off. The headline in the Watford Observer read, A Pathetic Shambles. Hill and Barsley were sold to Oxford United a few days later. Letters of complaint began to trickle in to the paper, saying, Watford fans are up in arms. What is the manager playing at? Are we losing good players and replacing them with also-rans? Bassett said he planned to take Watford back to the glory days of 1982 with a style of play to boot. Someone wrote a letter to remind Bassett that the team of 1982 had played with verve. Others were upset that the traditional Z-Cars theme the players used to run out to had been replaced by Superman, something they saw as a change for the sake of it. Results continued to go against Watford. By mid-October they were in the relegation zone, a position from which they would never recover. Bassett brought in Glyn Hodges, one of the wingers he wanted, from Newcastle. Having played for Bassett at Wimbledon, he was expecting to encounter a bit of the old crazy gang spirit, but it was nothing like that. I noticed confidence was low, because they'd had a bad start, he says. But Bassett was a confident guy. He was a worker and he wasn't blasé. It was some act trying to follow John Barnes, and at first the fans didn't take to me too well, but I won them over, I think. The other winger Bassett wanted was Nigel Callaghan, who was at Derby County, owned by Robert Maxwell. Watford came in for me and offered £250,000, he says. Elton was annoyed they'd sold me cheaply in the first place. Derby turned it down and said they wanted £400,000. Then they cooked up this bogus deal with Oxford, which was owned by Maxwell's sons. It was the biggest farce going, because there was no way anything like that money would change hands. It would just go from one Maxwell account to another. I threatened to report Derby to the league because they were only doing that to get more out of Watford. In the end, nothing came of it. That wasn't the only dealing Watford had with Maxwell, the publishing tycoon. In November, after months of denying he was selling his interest in Watford Football Club, it was announced that Elton John had transferred his shares to BPCC, British Printing and Communications Corporation, a company owned by Maxwell. Eddie Plumley travelled to London to meet Maxwell. Elton had been advised it would be a good thing and it was virtually a done deal until the Football League stepped in, he says. 
It wasn't with the blessing of everyone, not at all, but it was something we were carried away on. John Reed was urging Elton to get out of football. I knew Maxwell through Oxford and Derby. He was a very, very imposing guy. He was a great bully of a man. Even the way he walked through a door was bullish. We went down to the Daily Mirror offices in London with John Reed. We were being talked at by Maxwell. We were very high up at the top of this building, and I don't have a great head for height, so I wasn't too comfortable. He kept telling us he had six secretaries. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to impress us. Someone knocked on the door and told him he had a meeting, so he bowled out and went through another door into a lift and went upwards. I couldn't understand where he was going, but his secretary explained that a helicopter was waiting for him on the roof. As it turned out, he didn't have a license to allow the helicopter to actually land, so it had to hover and he jumped in. I didn't get the sense he was interested in football all that much. He was interested in power. Watford was there and he decided he wanted it. Elton wrote a column for the programme explaining his decision. I love the club passionately and will continue to do so, and this is certainly the hardest decision in my life, and it hurts me more than I can explain, but I cannot just stand back and let our dream disappear. I looked for other people to join the board and inject funds, but no one came forward. That's where the stories of me selling came from, but at that stage we just needed to bolster the board. It is our dream to see Watford as Division I champions. You must realise that although I will soon no longer be the controlling shareholder or the chairman of Watford, my heart and soul is still here. I will be a director, and, ironically, I feel I'll be more active than before. No one knew what to expect. Before the league match at Anfield, the phone in the dressing room rang. It was Maxwell, for Bassett. He wished me well and said I was his man when the takeover went through, says Bassett. Then he told the manager he'd better win before laughing a big, gutsy, slightly menacing laugh. Watford lost to Liverpool. 4-0. The Football League blocked the takeover because Maxwell already had an interest in Derby and his sons were in charge at Oxford, although everyone knew it was their father who called the shots. Some would argue Watford had a very lucky escape. On the pitch, things were going from bad to worse. Behind the scenes, the mood was black. Coton who had been widely tipped to go to Aston Villa with Graham Taylor, stormed out of the training ground one day after a bust-up. As a Birmingham City fan, through and through, the thought of going to Villa had never crossed his mind, but now he thought even that would be preferable. "'I liked Bassett as a person,' says McClellan, "'but his football was crazy. He said that if we needed to go down to come back up, so be it. But that was stupid. We had some top players.' We had a drill where he wanted to see who could bend it into the net from the corner. I could do it. So he had me taking corners for a while. It was nonsense. We were struggling for goals, and so it was very demoralising. Once we'd conceded, we knew we were going to lose. He had this chief scout who kept trying to give me advice. At Liverpool he tried to tell me what John Aldrich was going to do. I said I knew what John Aldrich would do. In the end I had to tell him to shut up and keep away from me. Mark Morris was a nice lad, but he was like Bassett, all rah, rah. People were talking about wanting to leave, but I said, he'll be gone before you. Why ruin your career? Bassett started to feel everyone was against him. John McClellan was the quickest player at the club, but he kept dropping me in the shit. I should have sold him to Sheffield Wednesday when I had the chance in the summer. He was a decent centre-half, but the old dog didn't want to change. He would drop back and play everyone on side, 
when he definitely had the legs to do what I wanted. The board were against me. Muff Winwood was as good as gold. I knew Jeff Smith didn't like me, but he was fairly neutral. Muir Stratford and Bertie Mee were totally against me. A few things got said to my wife. The fans didn't like me. They wanted me to present some prizes at the supporters' club once, and the mood was fucking hostile. It was like they wanted to lynch me. Everyone thought they had the answer. One fan wrote to Bassett suggesting the team he should pick. He only named nine, though, so he still left me some work to do, said the manager. He knew the sack was coming. A one-nil home defeat against Luton made it inevitable. It was a very low time, says Senior. The dressing room was split and the training was a chore. I was not scoring, I'd only got one in the league, and the supporters were booing when my name was read out before the game. That was bad enough, but then they started doing ironic cheers when I did something right, and that hurt. I came on as a sub and I headed the ball away and they cheered, so I stuck my thumb up behind my back. That broke the ice a bit. My lowest point was the Luton game. I was meant to be marking Steve Foster, but I got blocked off by another Luton player at a corner and Foster scored. That goal was down to me. On the Monday, we played a practice match, first team against reserves. Dave picked the teams, and he handed out bibs to the reserves first. I didn't get a bib, so I thought I was in the first team, but I wasn't. There were three of us left, myself and two apprentices. He handed me a flag and said, Can you run the line? Most experienced players would have told him to stick the flag up his ass, but I got on with it. He even had the cheek to say, Can you make sure you keep up with play? I can laugh about it now. I was the £325,000 linesman. But it hurt like hell at the time. Knowing the end was nigh, Bassett decided it was time for a final throw of the dice. If I was going to get the sack, I thought, fuck it, I'll do it my way, he says. I'd been too softly, softly in the first place. At Wimbledon, I'd been autocratic. But I should have said on day one, this is what we're doing. If you don't want to do it, fine, we'll move you on and no hard feelings. After a 3-1 home defeat against Sheffield Wednesday on Boxing Day, Bassett wielded the axe. For the game at Portsmouth, he dropped Tony Coton, Luther Blissett and Nigel Gibbs. The mood around the place was grim, says Bassett. People were avoiding eye contact. My wife said there was no point making myself even more unpopular because I was going to get the sack anyway. But I thought we might as well try to win some matches. It was a nil-nil draw, but Trevor scored a perfectly good goal that was ruled out for offside. The next game was at Spurs and we lost to a dodgy offside goal. Then we lost 1-0 to Manchester United at home. Tony Agarner absolutely killed them that day, but we just couldn't score. Before the United game, Coton's anger at being left out bubbled to the surface. He stormed out. I went up to the red line. No one was in there because they'd all gone to the game, so I thought, what do I do now? I had a pint and thought, what have I done? I went to see Bertie about getting a transfer, but he told me to sit tight. After the match, Elton asked Bassett to drop round to his house. He said we needed a chat. I knew what it was about, says Bassett. I had a few glasses of champagne and we chatted and he said it was a shame how everything had worked out. We agreed we'd got a few things wrong. Elton was terrific. He made sure it was all done properly. I still hadn't actually signed my contract and he could have stitched me up. Plenty of people would have, but he didn't. He even let me have my club Jaguar. He paid to buy it from the club and gave it to me. Bassett agreed to stay until the FA Cup third round game against Hull City. Watford drew 1-1. Senior had a chance to win the tie. 
Against Hull in Bassett's last game, I went round the keeper and rolled it towards the goal and it stopped on the line and we drew 1-1. That just about sums things up, he says. Even if Watford had beaten Hull, Bassett would have gone. He'd already spoken to Sheffield United about becoming their manager, but he left with a heavy heart because he had wanted to do well. Some fans still say I fucked up the club, but it was only six months, he says. It wasn't all flowers and sunshine before I got there, I can tell you. There were problems that would have come up, whoever the manager was. But I hold my hands up. I made mistakes. I tried to make too many changes too quickly. When I left, I had a big hatred for Watford. Not Elton, but some of the others. I never had a chance. My missus won't go near the place. She really hates it. She probably heard more of it behind the scenes than I did. The day I left, she said she'd never go back, and she hasn't. When I did a bit of work with A.D. Boothroyd years later, she gave me some stick but she did soften a bit. The way it was handled from start to finish was disastrous. I jumped in too easily and I got burned. But I learned never to let your emotions make a decision for you. Graham Taylor was at Aston Villa, battling to keep his new team on course for promotion from the second division, but unable to completely close the door on Watford. Every time I was down in London for any reason, I used to drive to Watford and go to the ground, he says. Taylor would wander down Occupation Road, and if the gates were unlocked, he'd walk in and look around, standing on the touchline and remembering all those great afternoons and evenings. I was still attached to the place. I'd wander in and think. I just could not get them out of my system. Rita was beginning to get a bit concerned. This lasted until Steve Harrison went back. With the ownership of the club still up in the air, the rest of the board managed to be united on who should be given the task of trying to steer Watford away from the foot of the table. Steve Harrison, Taylor's assistant at Villa, was the ideal candidate. Taylor was irritated that Bertie Mee and Jeff Smith tapped up Harrison. I always regret leaving Graham like that, says Harrison. I had said to him that I'd like to talk to Watford if anything came up, and he wasn't too happy about that, which I can understand. After a difficult start, we'd started to get it right, and we were going for promotion. I can quite understand why he was angry about the way I left. It turned out to be a mistake. It was miserable coming into a team that was struggling. I had expected it to be just like Watford had been before, and it wasn't. I fell out with Dave Bassett because of certain things I said off the top of my head that I shouldn't have, because it wasn't the right thing to say. But I was inexperienced, and in over my head a bit, and I imagine Dave was very upset. I regret it, and I apologise to him for that. The comments Harrison is referring to did not escape Bassett's attention. He said that the players weren't fit. He apologised later, because whatever they were or were not, they were fit. I challenged him about it, and he apologised. There were a couple of bright days, but relegation was on the cards from the start. Harrison did steer the team to the quarter-finals of the FA Cup, but they lost to Wimbledon at Plough Lane. In an earlier round, Trevor Senior scored the winner at Coventry. Steve Harrison had come in and said he would give everyone a fair crack of the whip, but I wanted to go, he says. I came on at half-time at Coventry and I was getting a lot of stick, but then I scored the winner and they were all cheering. At the end of the game, they were cheering my name, but I just ran down the tunnel. I didn't even enjoy that moment as much as I should have done. People always said Watford was a family club, but that's not the way I would treat my family. I understand people were frustrated, and they have a right to their opinion. I openly admit I wasn't good enough for that level at that time, but I was doing my best. 
I never once ducked to challenge or tried anything less than my hardest. Harrison tried to rally the squad, but things were too far gone. I didn't enjoy one moment of it, he says. It was very isolating. I moved Tom Wally up, but he preferred working with young players, and I could see he wasn't happy either. I just couldn't come to terms with it. Being a manager is like white-collar work, and being a coach is blue-collar work. I loved being a coach, working with players and gaining their trust and getting the best out of them, but as a manager I had to deal with them differently. I had to let people go, and I found myself making unpopular decisions to prove a point. I didn't want to be sour with players, but you had to have a distance and a sense of authority. Glyn Hodges says, I'd heard so much about what a great coach and what a funny guy Steve Harrison was, but I didn't see that. I felt he was trying to be Graham Taylor, and he should have just been himself. I may have spoken out of turn, but I even said that to him once. I did think management should be done the way Graham did it, Harrison admits. Bertie Mee said I had to be myself, but I just couldn't. After relegation, Harrison rebuilt the team, and they had a very good stab at getting promoted, but still the manager felt like a fish out of water. I tied myself in knots over team selection. As soon as you finished one game, you'd start thinking about the next. I was missing working with players the way I was used to. I hated having to do the business side of things, ringing up managers and talking about transfer fees and all that. I got myself into a bit of a state at times. As a coach, I had been used to making the atmosphere light and lifting people at the right times. That was my strength. Now I was in a completely different position. I couldn't laugh and joke because I was the gaffer. I had some good players coming through, but I couldn't handle their disappointment at not being in the team all the time. I sold Tim Sherwood, which was the wrong decision. I wanted to put them in slowly. They were in a hurry and I couldn't handle it. If I was a coach, I'd have said, just knuckle down and keep doing your best and your chance will come. But when you're a manager and you say that, it doesn't mean the same thing, because the player knows the score. He doesn't take it as encouragement from a coach wanting the best for you, because you're the man picking the team. By the end, I didn't even like myself very much. The bid to bounce back to the first division at the first attempt fell agonisingly short. After a superb start, Watford hit the top and stayed there until the autumn. Even defeats against Chelsea and Manchester City, the two teams that would eventually clinch automatic promotion, could not derail them. But slowly things came undone. By Christmas they'd slipped to fourth, and in the spring they were outside even the playoff places for a short spell. An injury to Glyn Hodges had hurt them badly. Hodges was injured again during the run-in and missed the crucial final games. It wasn't just the injury to Hodges, says Harrison. We had some other injuries, and I couldn't seem to settle on a team. We brought in a few players, Neil Redfern, Lee Richardson and Gary Thompson, but there were too many changes. They faltered for the final time, right at the death. It came down to a couple of home matches in early May. Watford lost 1-0 to Sunderland and were then held to a 0-0 draw by Shrewsbury, who were about to get relegated. The extra five points they'd have secured had they won those two matches would have been enough for an automatic promotion place. It was that close. There were still the playoffs. A goalless draw at Blackburn Rovers looked like a reasonable result, even if they had not managed to score an away goal. The second leg was a 1-1 draw, enough for Blackburn to squeeze through to the final on the away goals rule. 
The little winger, Rod Thomas, missed a great chance right near the end. Watford are still the only team to be eliminated from the playoffs without losing a game. They changed the rules after that. There were such tense games, but we didn't deserve to go out, says Harrison. When you look back now, you realise the difference it would have made if we'd been able to get back up straight away, says Gary Porter. It had been an incredible journey, and of course it could not go on forever. Football, like many other things in life, is cyclical. The line between success and failure is so thin. The roll of a ball one way or another can determine a club's future for years to come. After ten years of feast came ten of famine. A new owner, Jack Pepchy, eventually bought the club from Elton John, and a loose clause in the contract meant he also inherited as his own the three million pound debt the club owed its chairman. A string of managers tried without success to hit upon that almost indefinable alchemy that creates greatness. And then, in the spring of 1996, Elton John and Graham Taylor came back. But that, as they say, is another story. Enjoy the Game by Lionel Burney Read by Colin Mace Produced by John Mooney Text Copyright Lionel Burney 2010 Production Copyright 2023 by Lionel Burney, Colin Mace and John Mooney All rights reserved Lionel Burney asserts the moral right to be identified as the author of this work Thank you for listening.